0: our series we've broken for a few weeks but we're coming back to building a healthy church and our reading is in 1st Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 we return to this letter written by Paul the apostle written To one man, Timothy, yet an epistle about the whole church and what the church means and what the church should be. And so, for our church's benefit, we come to verses 14 to 16 of 1 Timothy 3. And you'll notice that uh, while Paul didn't have uh, embolden, italicize, underline, and all these things that we have, this little section just stands out. It's pronounced Many people have noticed this from the rest of the letter. This is the word of God. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. If we were to give a title to these verses, we could do little better, I think, than to call them the heart of 1 Timothy, the heart of 1 Timothy. One reason I say this is the unmissable fact that verses 14 to 16 of 1 Timothy 3 lie physically at the heart of this epistle. Coming as they do at the end of the third chapter of this sixth chapter letter in our Bibles. They are, in literary terms, at the very heart of this document. And this has no little irony in terms of the text location, because these verses also express to us the core ideas of the letter they are not only geographically central, they are also thematically central. They are the heart beat of the letter. I hope this evening you have brought your stethoscope with you, because by listening closely to these few verses, you will actually hear the heartbeat of the entirety of 1 Timothy. And so, as we Re-examine these verses this evening. As we have our Bibles open, I want to simply ask this question. What are these central concerns? What issues lie at the heart of 1 Timothy? What passions pound forth from the heart of the apostle such that he took up his pen and wrote this letter? Well, there are two passions. There are two concerns. And the first passion or concern is this. The church's conduct. The church's conduct is something that Paul was so deeply concerned about that he wrote this epistle. I wonder what sorts of things concern you. I wonder what sorts of issues move your heart. I wonder what kind of things would cause you to lift your pen and write to some other Christian. A few weeks ago, in my email box, I got a news report. It was a story about a pastor in a megachurch in the United States, well known church, and the story was that this pastor had been dismissed for gross misconduct. I wonder when you hear of that kind of thing, when you read of that kind of incident, when you hear about an individual Christian who isn't conducting themselves in a way befitting of the Lord, or a church that doesn't reflect the way that Christ would have it, I wonder if it moves your heart. The Apostle Paul's heart was so moved by the issue of conduct in one particular church in Ephesus that he wrote 1 Timothy. You notice that Paul tells us it is his purpose in writing the letter. He says in verse 15, I am writing you these instructions. He's speaking about one Timothy there. These instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I'm writing to you. It's singular to Timothy. I'm writing to you as the interim pastor of this church so that you can in turn instruct the congregation about how they should behave as those who are God's household, the church of the living God. Paul, throughout this letter, in case you haven't noticed, is almost obsessed with the church's conduct. In chapter 1, it's the conduct of deviant teachers. In chapter 2, it's the conduct of public worship. In chapter 3, it's the conduct of elders and deacons of the leadership of the church. We haven't come to it yet, but God willing, we will come to chapter 4. And the issue of the conduct of pastor teachers. Chapter 5, the conduct of pastoral care. Chapter 6, the conduct of the membership of the church. Paul really, 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 really was concerned about this issue of conduct. It was the purpose of his letter. It was practically all that he wrote about from the beginning of the letter to the end. And you notice something else that intensifies this, because Paul also tells us here something of his urgency in writing this letter, in sending it. Paul didn't need to write 1 Timothy. He could have waited, rather than sending this epistle, until he came to Ephesus himself. He was distant from the city at this time. He was away from Timothy. He was absent from this church, which he had previously founded. And he was concerned. We, we know that recently in this church, there had been something of a scandal in the leadership. There had been a, a crisis of conduct and creed among some leaders. And so Paul does want to come and, and, and instruct them afresh about the way that a church should behave, the way that leaders should conduct themselves and the church as a whole. But you notice what he says in verse 15, that he has this worry that he might be delayed. He wants to come to them soon, but he might be delayed. So what does he do? Well, Paul could have just said to himself, I'll wait until I come to Ephesus in person. And then face-to-face, maybe in a more appropriate medium, face-to-face, I'll share this information. But you know, you can tell the urgency of a matter to someone by the speed at which they communicate it. If on a Friday you realize that you've got some information to pass on to someone in the church, you might say, I'll wait till Sunday. I'll see them on Sunday morning. But you know, if the issue is of urgent concern to you, you will phone them at 3 o'clock in the morning if need be. If there's an issue of ill health in the family, if someone has just been bereaved in the family, you will get on the phone at whatever hour. And so Paul, with the medium that he had in his day, the fastest thing he could do, he wrote a letter and he sent someone, Godspeed, to take it to this church. You see, the conduct of the church was urgent to the apostle Paul. Now, the question that I have asked myself, and maybe you're asking yourself, is why was Paul so concerned about this? I mean, come on, Paul. Isn't what really matters in the Christian life the gospel? Isn't what really matters the simple fact that through Christ, through grace, through his death and his blood shed for us, that God has made us right with him? Maybe it doesn't really matter too much how we live. You remember in the church in Rome, there were some who said this kind of thing. That since they were saved by grace, they could conduct themselves their lifestyles, in whatever way they wished. Why is it that Paul was so concerned about this issue? And the reason that Paul was so concerned, the reason he cared, the reason the conduct of the church still matters today, is that the conduct of the church matters to God. Did you notice the way that Paul describes the church? He describes the church as that one organization, that one group of people in all of the world that are inextricably connected to God. In fact, he gives us two astonishing descriptions of the church. He doesn't just say, I'm writing about conduct in the church. He says, no, no, no. I'm writing about the way you conduct yourself in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Let's just take those two phrases. First of all, he says the church is God's household. What does it mean to be part of God's household? It's a really wonderful thing. It makes the church unlike anything else on the face of the planet. For the church is uniquely the family of God. It's amazing, isn't it? Once, if you were a Christian... You were alienated from God. Once you were a stranger and an enemy and an outsider. But now you've been reconciled to God. And more than that, the scripture teaches us, you have been adopted and brought in to the family of God. And Paul is reminding us of this this evening. He he says, Charlotte Chapel, you are part of this family of God. But I think what Paul is stressing is not merely the privilege of this, but the responsibility of this. I'm concerned about how you conduct yourselves in God's household. This is if he's saying, remember that. Remember whose family you are a part of. Your behavior reflects not just on yourself. I mean, parents, how often do you say this to your children? It reflects on the family. It reflects on your parents. I imagine Prince William and Prince Harry have uh, certain privileges with their lifestyle. I don't imagine the credit crunch is biting them too hard at the moment. But for all the opulence and opportunity, there's also a responsibility that falls on them. If If their behavior is not what it should be, it's smacked on the front page of the paper. And people are speaking of how their behavior reflects badly on the royal household. In a much greater way, friends, we who are the children of God in our conduct reflect something of the character of the king. The master of the house. The second image that Paul employs is, is no less staggering and no less puts responsibility on us. He says that the church is the church of the living God. You say that in verse 15, we're conducting ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul's saying we need to bear that in mind as we conduct our lives, individually and together, that we are part of the collective that is the church of the living God. We are that one assembly in the face of the whole earth in which the living God lives. It was something that marked out the Old Testament people of God. It set them leagues apart and leagues above the other pagan nations who worshipped dead idols. All the other nations were devoted to their so-called gods, bits of wood, bits of stone, gods which could not speak, gods which could not hear, gods which could not save. But Israel's God, by distinction and contrast, was a living God. He spoke and created the universe. He heard his people's cry. He came down with his mighty arm and he brought them out of slavery. And then most remarkably of all, and we've just been reading about this, haven't we? In Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Amazingly, the Lord deigns to come down and live in the very presence of the community of God's people. First of all, at Sinai. Then in the tabernacle. Eventually, in the temple. God lives. The living God lives among his people. And you know, today, in the new covenant reality, in this time when the Lord Jesus Christ has already come to the earth the first time and ushered in a new age, we live in an even more astounding situation. If you ask the question today, where does the living God live? Where is God's address on earth? The staggering answer is not Jerusalem. It is not a physical man-made temple. It is not some tabernacle or even some church building somewhere. The living God lives within his church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 that the church is the temple. The church you are the temple of the living God. We today are the tabernacles in which the living God, in all of his holiness, in all of his purity, lives today. We just sang that together at the beginning. Jesus, stand among us. When we gather together, the Lord Jesus is among us because the Lord Jesus is within us by his Holy Spirit. And this should have implications for the way we conduct ourselves. When Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church in chapter 6 of that uh, letter, 1 Corinthians, he said to the believers there, don't commit sexual immorality. A lot of them were just using their bodies as the way everyone else did. And Paul says, don't do it. But do you remember the reason Paul said that they shouldn't misuse their, their bodies sexually? He said, because your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a place in which the living God lives. So conduct yourselves differently. And what is true for us as individuals is also true for us as a church. We need to remind ourselves that as those who are the assembly of God's people, we are a community in which the living God lives So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.25 that that an unbeliever might come in to a church service like this evening and not be able to put their finger on why, but they might say, God is really among you. They'll sense it. They'll sense it in the atmosphere as God's people meet. I really do hope you get a chance to go onto the OM ship if you haven't yet. One of the things that I have felt every time I've gone onto one of the OM ships is a change in atmosphere. There's just something different. It's not the ship. It's not the boat. It's the people on the ship. It's the church on the ship, if I may put it in those terms. You do get this sense that there is a family of God's children on that boat. That the living God does live in that place and among his people. I wonder if we have that same feeling as we walk in and as we meet together at Charlotte Chapel, that we are God's family, that we are the assembly where the living God lives. This issue mattered to Paul, the conduct of the church, because it matters to God. Let me ask you this evening, does it matter to you? Does it matter to you? Paul had a second concern as well, and this comes in addition to the church's conduct, this was a second passion that Paul had. In verses 15 and 16, the church's confession now becomes the focus. The church's conduct, to begin with, I guess it's more of an interior thing, but then he looks more outward, and he speaks about the church's confession, the church's proclamation and evangelism. You see, the church is not just to be... A group of people who are concerned about keeping themselves holy. They are to be a holy people on a mission. Uh, Last summer, uh, one of my neighbors took me around the the, the back of uh, where our house is, and there's a cul-de-sac of garages, and he opened up his lockup. And in this garage was this beautiful old car, really old. I can't remember what year he said, maybe in the 50s. Beautiful, blue. He'd obviously spruced it up, kept it in mint condition. And he even turned on the engine. He was quite proud of this. Uh, this, this old, classic car, pristine condition. And after a while, I was trying to look intelligent and ask him, I don't know much about cars, so what do you ask? And eventually I, I, I came up with this. I said, so do you, do you drive it much? And he looked at me with a funny face <laughs> and uh, said, no. You don't drive a car like this, you know. Some churches are like that. We're kind of like the pristine car in the garage, you know. So orderly, so holy, so Christ-like. It's wonderful, isn't it? But the car's in the garage, and it's not actually being used for the purpose that God has given it for And we don't go out onto the roads of the world. We're nice and shiny, but we don't go out onto the highways and the byways to proclaim the gospel. But Paul says here that the church must be about its confession of Christ. At the end of verse 15, he uses a a third image. And it's the image of the truth being upheld, as it were, by a pillar and by a foundation. What is Paul talking about when he mentions these two images? These two images, they are architectural images. Well, I think these are related, but there's a distinction between them. The first is the foundation of the truth. And this really gives us the idea that the church is to undergird the truth unshakably. That the church is to be firm beneath the truth. In this picture, the truth is a house and the church is the foundation beneath the house. And the church is to be a solid foundation. Now, Paul is not saying here that the church creates the truth. That sadly is the idea you do get in some quarters, that the church continues today to create more and more truth. When Paul says the church is the foundation of the truth, that's not the sense that he has here. Because foundations don't create the houses on top of them, do they? Builders create foundations, and builders create the houses. No, but the foundation must sit firmly beneath the house on top of it. And Paul says the church must be firm underneath the truth. It must not abandon the truth. I think what Paul is talking about here is the fact that there may be storms, that there may be earthquakes perhaps. And the church must not abandon the truth, but it must be as a firm foundation beneath it. Many things in a church will change over the years and change over the centuries, but its central core doctrines should never change. The authority of Scripture, the divinity of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his return. At the end of human history, these are truths that should never be abandoned, and the church, as it were, should be a firm foundation, even as the winds blow, even as the prevailing winds of our culture tell us to turn to other things. But then Paul also adds that the church is not just the foundation of the truth, it's also the pillar of the truth. And whereas the foundation of the truth is more of a defensive aspect, it's about protecting the truth against heresy, this pillar of the truth, I think, is something slightly different. Because it's not only undergirding something, it's upholding something. It's lifting it up high for the world to see. The church is to uphold the truth high. Now, in Ephesus, they would have understood this picture. Because in Ephesus, there was a magnificent temple called the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. People came from all over the then-known world to see it. And it had this magnificent marble roof. And this weighty roof was held up by 127 pillars. These pillars held the roof 18 meters high off the ground So that even if you were miles away, you could see this temple from a distance. And Paul says to this church in this city, who had this familiar sight in their skyline as we see the castle most days. And Paul says in the same way, the church must be a pillar that holds the truth of Christ high for the world to see. This, friends, is still our primary mission and objective. As a church, Paul is writing here to a local church. It's not just the job of mission agencies like OM to be involved in evangelism. Wonderful that they're doing that and we're supporting them in that. But Paul here is talking about local churches. And the question is when the boat goes, when the ship goes, are we going to be those who are still upholding the truth in this city? Some of us uh, attended a pastor's lunch on the Logos Hope on Thursday. And some ministers from Aberdeen came down. They came to tell us about an increasing sense of unity among the ministers in Aberdeen and a prayer meeting between people from a very broad spectrum. And they said that in Aberdeen, they reckoned something like only 5% of the population would call themselves Christians. 5% they said it was something like 170,000 people in Aberdeen who do not know the Lord Jesus and who are heading for a lost eternity. And one of the pastors said, we realize that we simply cannot fight between ourselves when so many people are heading for hell. When all the world around us, our society, is uplifting its temples. Why are we not together together? as churches, being pillars who are upholding the truth, who are concerned not for the sheep that other people have, but for those who are beyond the fold. I wonder here in Edinburgh whether God might bless us with a new day, a new time of unity, where each church around the city, as it were, is like one of those 127 pillars, upholding the truth, the same truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is this truth? That's what Paul finishes with. The truth itself in verse 16. The mission of the church is evangelism. It's to protect the truth and to uphold the truth. But the message of the, of the church is Christ. Many scholars think verse 16 is a hymn. It's an early Christian praise song, so to speak. And if so, it is a hymn about him. The he refers clearly to Jesus. And Paul tells us some wonderful things about Christ that I could take all evening to expand on, but I won't. But very briefly, he covers the scope of the earthly ministry of Christ. He appeared in a body. That's his incarnation. That's Bethlehem. That the word became flesh. That God became man. He appeared. He was Secondly, vindicated by the Spirit. This probably, there's some disagreement, but it probably refers to the resurrection of Christ. Because when Jesus was crucified on the cross, as we'll think about this Thursday coming, when he was crucified, the world thought of Jesus as a common criminal. They thought of him as an imposter. They thought of him as a false messiah. But Romans chapter 1 tells us that when God raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit vindicated Christ and showed him to be the Son of God with power. He appeared. He was vindicated. He was seen by angels all through his life, at his birth, at his baptism, at his temptation. And we certainly know, and I think this might refer here to the resurrection again. In three gospel accounts, the angels are mentioned. The heavenly realms witness the ministry of Jesus. And he was then preached among the nations. And you can read about it in Acts, how empowered by the Spirit, the church goes in to all the world and proclaims the message of the gospel. And it was not without effect, because the next line says, he was believed on in the world. They preached the message, and many people believed. Many churches were established. We see the evidence in the world today that Jesus lives because the church has been established all over the globe. And finally, he was taken up in glory. The funny thing about this one is that it's out of chronology. I think all the other ones are in a chronological sequence. But the incarnation, of course, happened before the proclamation in Acts. It happened before many of the churches were established. But I think Matthew Henry, a great old commentator, is right when he says, Paul leaves this last because it is the crowning of Christ's earthly ministry. It wasn't chronologically last, but it really is the last point we should meditate on. That after his resurrection, in a a sign of victory... Christ was raised up into heavenly glory, where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is someone worthy of our proclamation, folks. Paul, writing in Colossians, says, Him we proclaim. We don't just proclaim a message about a whole host of doctrines. We actually proclaim the Lord Jesus himself in all that he has done for us. Paul says here that Christ is the mystery of godliness revealed in history. He is godliness. He is God himself made flesh, manifest in history. There is no other message. There is no better message that any of us could come up with this evening. And so in this church, the challenge for us as we go forward Is that we continue to preach Him, that we continue as a congregation to witness to Him, and that even as we come around the Lord's table once a month, we are faithful in coming here because at this table we witness Him. As we see in symbol the broken body of Christ and the blood that was poured out there. For our sins. This church is not about anything else or anyone else than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of 1 Timothy, the conduct of the church, which reflects on Christ's glory and the confession of the church, which focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to come and continue to focus on him now. We're going to sing uh, together a hymn that leads us to Christ, that focuses us on the Lord Jesus. And one of the images that we find of him in scripture is that he is the lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.